Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Paul Bingham and Joanne Souza on the show, and we'll be talking about their fascinating new book, Death from a Distance and the Birth of a Humane Universe. Theories of history are out of fashion. They have been for a number of years, particularly since the collapse of Marxism. You occasionally find historians dabbling in them, but usually when you see a new theory of history, it is written by somebody other than a historian. Jared Diamond comes to mind. He is a geographer. The book under consideration today is another example and a terrific example of a modern theory of history. Paul Bingham and Joanne Souza have constructed a way to think about the development of humanity from the evolution of Homo sapiens some two million years ago to the present, one that makes sense of a lot of what we see in the historical record and reduces it, if I might say, to a number of reasonably simple and elegant rules. These rules involve the costs of policing and the results of decreases in those costs for social evolution. This is really the kind of book I think that every historian should read, especially historians who are interested in world history. It offers not only a description, historians are very good at description, but an explanation of what we see in the historical record. In any event, I really enjoyed talking to Paul and Joanne today, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Paul and Joanne. Hello, Marshall. Hi, Marshall. How are you guys today? Doing very well. It's a beautiful day here. I'm glad to hear that. You're in uh, Stony Brook, New York. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Yes, I'm, I'm glad to hear the weather's good. Uh, we're having a wonderful spring here in Iowa today. Which, uh, it's very nice. My son gets to play outside and my daughter. So they're happy about that. No more winter. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Paul Bingham and Joanne Souza about their really interesting, challenging new book, Death from a Distance and the Birth of a Humane Universe. The book is really a theory of history. And as I was telling them in the pre-interview, uh, theories of history are a little bit out of fashion these days among historians. I think that's really too bad. Uh, This is a particularly good one. It's very challenging, and I recommend that everyone uh, who's interested in big history or long-term history or wants an explanation, what biologists sometimes call an ultimate explanation, of why things have turned out the way they have turned out. I think that everyone that's interested in that question should read the book. I know that uh, I enjoyed it very, very much, and I just want to thank the authors for writing it. And I also want to thank uh, a listener to the show for bringing it to my attention. I had read Paul's work uh, years ago on this issue, and I was very happy to see that uh, a book had come out. Uh, You can find a link to the book's website on New Books in History, and I, again, encourage you to go there. Paul and Joanne, why don't we begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Let's go in reverse order now. Joanne, why don't you begin? Okay. Uh, I grew up on Long Island, and I did exceptionally well in school, but I loved horses and loved animals, so I needed to support my my Mm -hmm. love of animals. Therefore, I started to work very early in life. So I've worked in all types of institutions, large and small. I've worked in public institutions, federal, state. I've worked in small companies and in large. And I went to work for AT&T eventually and was lucky enough to, I guess you can call it lucky, lucky enough to live through divestiture, where I watched the company go from under the Public Service Commission to something that became uh, basically a free-for-all at the time. But what I noticed was that people, I'm very interested in human health and in stress. And what I noticed that a lot of the institutions that people actually work in don't uh, serve their interests at all. And I wanted to understand why. I wanted to understand what the problem was. 
So I basically gave everything up and came back into academia, looking into the social sciences and to social psychology mm-hmm. to see if I could find some answers. In other words, I could describe how people would behave. I could d- describe the stress that they would undergo, but I couldn't understand uh, cause and effect at all. So I came back into the, into academia, looked into the social sciences. I did not find my answers there. I found out that <laughs> Sorry, they were just as descriptive as, as my uh, basically as my experience. So I backed up into evolutionary biology to find out the underlying cause of social be- human social behavior, and that's basically when I met Paul. Yeah, well, that's a, your story is a little okay. bit like mine. So, yeah, if I went that, through Russian history, go ahead, Paul. <laughs> the, the meeting of the two of us is actually, of course, going to be the key event in both of these biographies. So I actually grew up not far from you, Marshall, in the rural Midwest near Champaign-Urbana. Really? Yeah, and I, I went to uh, undergraduate school in a small private school near St. Louis called Blackburn College. Uh-huh. But then I went on to do a Ph.D. in biochemistry and molecular biology at Harvard. I started in the mid-'70s, so I'm uh, over 50, shall we say. And uh, at that point, the sort of cutting edge of the intellectual excitement in the sciences was molecular biology. Mm-hmm. This was at the, at the pinnacle of the molecular revolution, and I wanted to be a part of it. And so I did my Ph.D. at Harvard in that subject. But I'd always had an interest in human social behavior and, and an awareness that we didn't understand it very well. And it was my good fortune that uh, Ed Wilson published Sociobiology literally the year I came to Harvard. Mm-hmm. And so I got to know Ed and I got to know Steve Gould and Bob Trivers and the guys across Divinity Avenue from me who were thinking uh, very um, uh, simply about the evolution of human social behavior. Mm-hmm. So I went on. I spent the rest of my career working on uh, biochemistry and molecular biology and cell biology. And I continue to do that. But this has been uh, a second interest, the evolution of human social behavior, mm-hmm. and it grew in the 90s into a full-blown second interest, uh, co-equal with my interest in molecular biology. Mm-hmm. And I pursued it, and I had the good fortune to meet Joanne about 10 years ago, and we recognized that we had highly confluent interests, and we spent the last decade building and testing and refining a theory, a new theory of human behavior, including a theory of history. And of course, that's the subject of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a a terrific story. You know, historians very rarely work with anyone but themselves. uh, (laughs) And and I sometimes feel like that's a bad thing. I told you I do a lot. I did uh, biology as an undergraduate and as well as history. And um, I uh, remember very clearly being influenced by uh, sociobiology and thinking it was a uh, really quite a, quite an interesting way to explain certain human behaviors or at least putatively explain certain human behaviors. Then when I got to graduate school in history, I was told that that was um, not something a historian should think about and that that was genetic determinism and uh, you shouldn't, yes, that was, uh, yeah. I remember Nazis being invent- mentioned a lot. I did, the, the historians are very afraid of this kind of thing and I, I'm here to say that they shouldn't be because I, I uh, having worked in this field for Many years now, I've never met a Nazi, <laughs> not one. <laughs> so they're all very well-intentioned people, such as yourself. So why don't you tell us how you came to write this book? I guess it goes even deeper than that, how you evolved the theory. Okay. So let me let me start off, and Joanne will pick up, I guess. Mm-hmm. So what the... Um, the subject of the book is a fundamentally new theory of the evolutionary logic of human social behavior. And let me emphasize that we've gone far beyond sociobiology and evolutionary psychology. We have taken off into a completely new level of understanding, we argue, in the book. And um, the fundamental uh, theory is that the conflict of interest problem limits all social cooperation in all animals at all times. And humans are different than other animals for a single reason. Because we control conflicts of interest, we manage them, we keep them from interfering with our social cooperation in a way that non-human animals have never done before. And in so doing, that gives us, it turns out, a theory of language evolution, a theory of the evolution of our cognitive virtuosity. We can discuss those things later if you if you like. But I would. Uh, yes, go ahead. <laughs> but of equal interest is that it gives us a theory of history of completely unprecedented scope. And I'll briefly summarize that theory for you in a moment. But let me emphasize that historian skepticism of what's sometimes called grand theory is a little like a, a 15th century astronomer being skeptical because Ptolemaic astronomy for 2,000 years has failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, grand theory fails because we have had the right one. When, mm-hmm. you know, when Copernican and Newtonian mechanics comes along, suddenly we have the right one, and grand theory looks a lot more promising. In fact, we would argue from the natural sciences that any good theory 
turns out to be a grand theory because mm-hmm. they turn out to be uh, a very powerful and predictive and parsimonious. Mm-hmm. And we argue that that's what we have. Mm-hmm. So let me try to c- capsulize the theory for you. And then okay, great. So the argument is that humans have are the first animals to have access to inexpensive coercive threat. We're the first animals for whom law enforcement is a Darwinian adaptation. Hence, and we have access to that because of our ability to project threat from a distance, hence the, the phrase death from a distance in the title. As a result of inexpensive law enforcement, our ability to cooperate with non-kin, I'm sure you're aware human animal, non-human animals cooperate with kin, human animals cooperate also with non-kin. Mm-hmm. Our ability to cooperate with non-kin with whom we have conflicts of interest depends on our ability to inexpensively manage the conflict of interest problem. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, we're genetically designed to be cultural creatures, by the way. So this is not, this theory is not genetically deterministic in the kind of trivial sense. Mm -hmm. We are first and foremost cultural creatures. It is our biological heritage. Mm -hmm. The reason that's important, though, is that the scale of our adaptive sophistication, including our ability even to understand ourselves and certainly to manipulate our environment, is determined by the scale of our social cooperation because that in turn determines the magnitude of the stream of cultural information that informs our behavior. Mm -hmm. So one last piece and then we have a theory of history. The scale of our social cooperation is determined by the scale at which we can apply this two million year old trick of coercive suppression of conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. That in turn is determined by the, our, the coercive threat that we can project, which of course is limited by the weapons technology to which we have access. Mm -hmm. So humans use weapons not primarily for mayhem and violence, but primarily for enforcement of cooperation, mm-hmm. for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. From that emerges, from that theory emerges a theory of the agricultural revolutions, the rise of the state, even the rise of the contemporary pan-global uh, human village as, mm-hmm. we can as we go forward. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent summary, Joanne. Do you have anything to add to that before I uh, well, launch I, off on I, some I, questions? Sure. What I would like to say is that without understanding this management of conflicts of interest, we tend to make two, one, of, uh, one of two mistakes. We either think that humans are just like other animals and we've just evolved to a, a certain higher degree of intelligence, or we tend to think that we're very different from other animals and just get over it and we don't understand why that difference exists. So in order to understand exactly where we are different and where we are not, we need to understand where, what the evolutionary logic was that produced an animal like us under the rules of natural selection. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point as well. Uh, things, I think we can all agree that things are the way they are largely because of natural selection. I hope we can all pretty much agree on that. There are some subtleties there from population biology and phylogenetics, but let's just agree that natural selection does most of the work. So let me ask a couple of questions that I think the listeners will have about the theory. Uh, one is, uh, since it is a theory of the evolution of cooperation, and one of the empirical premises that you forward is that uh, humans are uh, kind of uniquely able to solve these conflicts of interest and therefore are able to develop very complex cooperation. Somebody might want to know what you have to say about, let's say, the eusocial insects, bees and ants and wasps. That's a great example, and of course, being a, 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 a informal protege of Ed Wilson, I yeah, that's an easy one. I'm sorry, but who... <laughs> Ed may not want to admit to be, my being his protege. By the way, so let me inflict that on him. But the um, the uh, yeah, so so there are two levels to the use social insects. The first, of course, is the straightforward uh, kin selection. So these these large colonies tend to be massive nuclear families to a first approximation. And of course, kin selection we understand very well. Uh, the unit of interest in biology is not the individual, it's the genetic design information that builds the individual. And even Darwin implicitly recognized that. That's kind of easy. But there's another interesting level to the use social insects. I don't know whether you're familiar with the, the work or not, but there's something called worker policing. Mm-hmm. It, it turns out that the ants, the hymenopterans, ants and bees, the workers can actually lay eggs, unfertilized eggs. And in a hymenopteran, because of the way their chromosome mechanics works, those uh, unfertilized eggs are sons, perfectly good sons. And those sons are more closely related to them than their brothers are, that is, the queen's male eggs. So they have an incentive to raise their, their sons instead of their brothers. They don't. The reason they don't is that their sisters eat those eggs. Mm-hmm called worker policing. They suppress reproduction by the kin-selected reproduction by the workers, forcing the workers to raise their brothers. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, youth social insects include both kin selection and 
a tiny, tiny amount of coercive suppression of conflicts of interest mm-hmm. enforcing a higher level of cooperation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, we should probably explain what kin selection is for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure that many listeners do. Kin selection, you can think of it very simply as favoring those who are genetically like yourself. I don't know if there's a there's probably a better formulation, but that's, that's a, a quick probably and dirty one. You probably have to say close kin. It's very important that close kin, it's mother, father, sure. brother, sister, offspring. Yeah. Sure, sure, one, absolutely. If you get past that, uh, you'll see uh, genetic relatedness drop like a stone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So let me ask another question. Uh, uh, I know one of the premises of the book is that the initial leap, so to say, into very complex forms of cooperation had to do with, as you say in the theory, the appearance of a a new weapon system, one that allowed humans to inexpensively police one another uh, through violent means, or at least the threat of violence. This was really the key component in the evolution of all of these uh, genetically-based uh, policing designs. Uh, and, and that uh, evolutionary moment has to do with our ability to throw. And I think for many people, this is going to be very counterintuitive because we don't think of throwing as anything unusual. But maybe you could talk about the, uh, the, the very strange morphology of uh, human throwing. And it's, um, I think the word that you use is virtuosity of it. Uh, and right. there's, a, there's a sentence in the book, I think, that's something like, we throw like birds fly or something like this. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's the crucial point. You're, first of all, your, your premise is correct. That, we argue, is the first domino. The evolution of elite throwing leads to everything else that makes us human. And again, we can explore that in more detail in a moment. But, um, I'm sorry, Joanne has something to I, add. I just wanted to clarify one thing. that uh, To make sure that people understand that what we're saying is that once you cut off the best available option, which basically would be kin-selected behavior, then cooper- cooperation can emerge at the next scale. Mm-hmm. So, but what happens is the person is taking now, or the, the organism is taking the next available option when the best self-interested strategy is cut off. Mm-hmm. So then now to come back to throwing, throwing is what lets us cut off that alternative option, the equivalent of worker policing in the social insects, except now on a vast new scale. So yes, yeah, so if you look at the, if you look at humans, so if you watch a, an American baseball game, uh, people do things out on the diamond that our, even our closest living relatives, chimps, cannot do. So, in fact, Joanne and I show a video clip to an undergraduate course that we teach, and it produces one of the biggest laughs of the semester when we just show them chimps throwing. They are goofily incompetent at it. <laughs> yeah, they are. Even those powerful animals, they can rip your arm off. They are powerful animals, but they throw in a way that's just absurdly funny to us because we throw with elite sophistication. Another line we use in the book is that humans throw the way dolphins swim and the way cheetahs run. Mm-hmm. Our bodies have been redesigned to throw with elite skills. So if you list the things that make humans unique, you know, you think of speech and large brains, but elite throwing is another of those things. And it's easy, in fact, to pinpoint all the different skeletal adaptations in us compared to our non-human Australopith ancestors that make us such good throwers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My my wife is a mathematician, and she likes to give the example in her calculus classes of a uh, uh, throwing um, a stick to a dog, and she'll say, "Look, the dog is solving a calculus problem on the fly." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, I can do that. Yeah. I can do that with a baseball. I did it for years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and much more accurately than the dog. But it is true. I mean, the the degree of sophistication in human throwing, the ability to hit something with a small object at really a pretty significant distance, is is something that no other species can come even close to, which isn't to say that they don't have their own virtuosities, but this is one that I believe is unique in the animal kingdom. So explain how that gets us, how how that itself evolved. Well, so we think that, so remember that natural selection has no foresight. Mm -hmm. So it cannot say, okay, let's build a human that throws with elite skills so that we can evolve kinship independent social Mm -hmm. property. So, in fact, we believe that elite throwing probably evolved in the context of a of a power scavenging uh, or hunting adaptation. Power scavenging is easy to think about. So, in a fragmented African uh, landscape of two million years ago, uh, uh, hypothetically, an Australopithecus population found itself in a, in a refugium, a savanna refugium, where the big heavyweight social hunters like lions and and hyenas were not, but lightweight solitary speed hunters, say like cheetahs and leopards, were. That opens a really interesting opportunity. You let that speed hunter bring down a prey. You let it feed a little bit so it's not too hungry. And then you chase it off the prey and take it. Mm -hmm. That's called power scavenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, That kind of scenario would select 
uh, for elite throwing in an animal that throws poorly the way chimps do. Chimps throw poorly, but their throwing is not so completely incompetent that they could not scare a well-fed and indolent solitary speed hunter off its prey. Remember that if a speed hunter's leg is broken or its teeth are shattered, it's dead. There are mm-hmm. no cheetah hospitals. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if that adaptation arises, then there will be very strong selection for animals to get better and better and better at throwing in order to hunt or scavenge better. Mm-hmm. That then produces an elite thrower, and of course natural selection will then start experimenting with elite throwing to find out what else it, speaking metaphorically, what else it can lead to, and in fact it leads to kinship independent cooperation, we argue. Mm-hmm. Do we have, since uh, all um, primates that existed between 6 and 2 million years ago were roughly in the same ecological context, do we have any fossil evidence of any other early primates who developed this that did not make it to uh, the present, that is, extinct hominins? If you understand the question. I I do, and nothing decisive. The only reason I hesitate is that you could take certain scraps and interpret them that way, but the simplest interpretation of the evidence, Marshall, is that there were multiple Australopith species. Yeah or hominids, uh, using the older term, mm-hmm. uh, in Africa at this time, probably at least two and maybe three or four lineages. One of the lineages underwent the process we just talked about. Mm-hmm. And there is, in fact, a great deal of both archaeological and fossil evidence that that happens, and we can come back to that in a moment, if you like. The other Australopith lineages went about their own business, and in fact, uh, non-human Australopiths coexisted with early Homo up until about a million years ago. Yeah, 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 that's right. I just was wondering, because, you know, uh, there are these, um, you know, evolutionary, uh, I guess, what is, the, what is the word that you use for it? I can't really remember where. A similar sort of trait is developed by multiple species in a lineage. Uh, and one might think that uh, elite throwing would be one of those, and it may have. It's just it that. May have, but it appeared, if so, one of the lineages took off and, and displaced the other yes. the way we have to drive chimps to extinction. Yeah, displace. That's, a, that's such a nice term. I want to keep displace and not murder. No. Uh, so um, let's. Um, Let's uh, move on just a little bit, and let's make the the connection between elite throwing and the development of n- non-kin cooperation. And I was hoping that you would particularly talk about what we might call the mm, the personal economics of uh, engaging in violence with uh, others of your kind. Okay, I- I'd like to make one point. Too. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Joanne. When we talk about... Um, um in other words, this power scavenging, it, this would take into consideration that humans could run because you would be looking to uh, chase down that cheater and keep up with it. However, the running in itself doesn't manage the conflicts of interest problem between non-kin at all. So what we're saying is that if, you, if, if two animals fight up close, in other words, it's what we call proximal killing, the chances of your getting hurt individually are very high. So in that case, a bigger, stronger animal would win. So that's where you get your, your dominance hierarchy uh, coming into play. However, if you have an animal that can project threat from a distance, what ends up happening is the chances of any individual in a group that would try to chase off a cheater gets hurt, falls drastically. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you had a, 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 a group of animals, a group of kin animals, chase down a kill, and then they chased off the cheetah, say, and then another animal came in and tried to take it from them, what they could easily do is project threat. In other words, they could take those rocks and they could throw it at the person or the animal Mm -hmm. that tried to take the kill from them. And then this lowers the risk of incurring some sort of personal injury uh, non-linearly, so to say. In other words, it really drastically lowers the risk of being hurt. Yes. And I think that's intuitive. It should be intuitive to anyone who's ever seen a fight between humans. That is something like a bar fight, uh, a no-holds-barred kind of bar fight, because, uh, you you know, you're going to get hurt. Even even the winner comes out in pretty bad shape in a bar fight. And, And oftentimes the little guy does beat up the big guy. Probably in the majority of cases, the big guy wins. Mass is important. But grappling with somebody is a really dangerous thing. 
I mean, right. uh, for, for every fight I've ever seen, and I've seen a few, have always ended up as a wrestling match, and those are particularly bad news. So yeah. you are very likely to be hurt. But so what you're saying is if you have a kind of what military strategists call a standoff weapon, uh, you can actually uh, – you don't have to really defend yourself because you are at a distance. And the, the, the analogy that comes to mind is bring, you, know, you don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. That's exactly right. Correct. A knife fight and a firing squad are fundamentally different things. Yeah, they are. I tell you what. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. So um, then the notion is, is that uh, humans um, started to use this ability that they had developed in uh, scavenging to police one another as they became more cooperative. Is that correct? That's correct. So that, in effect, what happens is that if multiple individuals can simultaneously project threat against a single individual, they can very inexpensively, in other words, they're acting as a firing squad, not as an individual knife fighter, they can very inexpensively ostracize those individuals who do not want to conform to the consensus. Mm-hmm. And the personal economics that you alluded to a moment ago are that it, the um, your risks in projecting threat from a distance go down as the square of your numerical advantage. Mm -hmm. So if there are five of you ostracizing a single free rider, your risks are 25-fold lower, not Mm -hmm. five-fold lower, than they would be if you were trying to ostracize them as a single individual. Mm -hmm. That extreme catastrophic reduction in risk then makes the benefits, the secondary benefits of law enforcement, very attractive because its costs are low and its benefits are significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, where this where this non-kin cooperation comes in is that if a non-kin cooperator, now their best available option is to join the cooperative hunt mm-hmm. if they wish to eat. Mm-hmm. Because, because it becomes, yeah, it becomes it extremely, extremely expensive out. not to join. Excuse me? It becomes extremely expensive uh, not to join. Right. Yes, so either exactly. so you don't eat, or and in this case, it's, you don't just steal it. Now you have to contribute to creating it in the first place. Uh-huh. I see what you mean. Yeah. So let me ask a couple of questions that uh, you deal with very well in the book, but I think the uh, readers will be interested in them. One is, uh, what about a case in which, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like an ambush where a bunch of uh, Let's just say a bunch of primates jump one another. They do do this. We've seen this. We see this in chimpanzees. Why doesn't that efficiently lower the cost of um, of policing? Right. So I think there's two levels to that answer. First of all, humans can project threat at, uh, with lethal effect out to about 10 meters. That means you can put 100 humans on a single target. Mm-hmm. 100 squared is 10,000 fold. That is an enormous effect, and it's those kinds of uh, depressions in costs that are probably really evolutionarily important. In other words, putting two or three uh, individuals on a target buys you a nine-fold effect. Putting a hundred-fold on a target buys you a 10,000-fold effect. Mm-hmm. That having been said, uh, a lot of the free riding in non-human animal social behavior is executed not by a single individual, but by close kin, say two or three brothers or sisters. So if you're going to ostracize free riders, you have to ostracize a small group of tightly knit individuals Mm -hmm. who will tend to fight back to back. Mm-hmm. So ambushing three individuals with three other individuals ends up being a knife fight, not a yeah. firing squad, mm-hmm. to put it uh, simply. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the, the sort of short answer. I think if you look at non-human animal coercion, uh, chimps, for example, will occasionally put two or three individuals on an isolated target, but individuals will conspire to avoid being that target, including hanging around with their close kin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually, uh, I, I think I experienced that in high school. <laughs> um, the Williams brothers yeah, don't mess so with them. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I see just what you mean. So I asked you a question over email, and I was interested to hear your uh, response. The question was this: uh, Why isn't the case that uh, prior to the evolution of elite throwing of this um, missile projection virtuosity? Uh, wasn't it the case that the cost of punishing people wasn't already very low? People, I say people of hominins, very, very low because uh, they sleep, and you can kill anyone in their sleep uh, m- pretty easily, especially if you have a some sort of weighty object in your hand. And we know that hominins had them a couple of million years ago. Yeah, we think we have a pretty good grasp of, of why that doesn't work. The first thing to remember is that the strategy has to be a recurrently effective strategy year after year for tens of thousands yeah. of years to allow the evolution of a systematic adaptation in, its, in response to it. But uh, 
as biologists, and Joanne has vast experience also, as I do with non-human animals, their sleep behavior evolves to their risk environment. So if they're at very high risk of predation or, for that matter, of conspecific violence, as you're proposing, mm-hmm. then they evolve either to sleep lightly, so they're very difficult to approach, or to sleep in, in fortified locations. So even chimps, for example, tend to build in the wild, tend to build leaf nests in trees, making it very difficult to approach them without making a big racket. Mm-hmm. Um, also, so in other words, the strategy of consistently being able to kill someone at will in, in his or her sleep may not be very realistic. There's another issue, though. If you can stay awake and catch an animal in its sleep, an animal can feign sleep and destroy you as you approach. Yeah. So it, it, as a consistent strategy for inexpensive coercive threat, it's probably not very workable. But let's, let's make the worst-case assumption for our theory and assume that you could kind of make it work at, in, in some way or another. You are... Again, though, enforcing the law in a knife fight, that is, you're approaching as one or two individuals, one other individual. If they happen to be feigning sleep and counterattack, all the risks of law enforcement are on you. And that your uh, acts of law enforcement then become altruistic acts, literally genetically altruistic acts. Natural selection never, ever selects consistently for genetically altruistic acts. Mm-hmm. The, the benefits of your ostracism go to everybody. The costs all go to you. The virtue of being able to kill from a distance is that the same people who benefit from ostracism pay its costs. Mm-hmm. And, people, and I think part of the problem is people need to understand that the behavior that we see today or that we'll see in a current environment is, is the successful behavior in, in the, from, the, from the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were, we were designed in the Pleistocene, so to say. Design is probably too strong a word. Kind of back. Yep, that's right. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. Let's talk just for a second because I don't think most people know. Why is it the case, uh, and again, this goes right back to Trivers and these folks, uh, why is it the case that nature or natural selection could never select for altruism? Well, it, it, of course, we have to be be sure we're agreeing on what the definition yeah. of altruism is. And, of course, what we mean by that is that you commit an act that uh, imposes a cost on your probability of survival or your reproductive output that does not pay returns in terms of increasing either your reproductive output or the reproductive output of very close kin, siblings, parents, offspring. So that's a formal definition of altruism. Uh, there's a whole body of thought that argues that humans are unique in that we have evolved to engage in exactly such altruism. We argue that that is fundamentally wrong, that humans have evolved to cooperate in pursuance of, pursuant of um, confluent self-interest not as a result of engaging in public altruism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a very, very important point, and it marked uh, a kind of revolution in thinking about social behavior uh, because for a long time people uh, used altruism in a kind of, I guess I would say, naive, atheoretical sense. But um, yep. after Hamilton and, I guess, Trivers, then we started to think about it in, in a new way. Actually, it's funny, there's a, there's a line that I still remember in, I guess it was Trivers' paper on reciprocal altruism, that the point of the biology of altru- altruism is to remove the altruism from altruism, which I thought, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, yeah that very clever guy, that good guy, Trevor's. Um, so in any event, let's, let's uh, make another thing clear that I don't think most uh, historians at least will, will know about, and that is the degree to which uh, human social behavior is more cooperative than uh, any species at all and any species closely related to us. And in order to understand that, I think the best way to do it would be to talk a little bit about chimpanzee groups. Right. So uh, humans, uh, let me actually uh, give you a sort of aphoristic answer and then let's talk about chimps. So the aphoristic answer is that humans and non-humans alike engage in kin-selective behavior. So human behavior in a nuclear family is very much like non-human behavior in a nuclear family. What's unique about us is that we have what we think of as our public lives, as a public domain. Non-human animals essentially have no public domain. They have no domain in which they systematically interact with other non-kin adults in a cooperative way. They do not. So if we look at chimps, for example, the core of a chimp troop is a group of males who are either kin or potentially kin, and that's important to recognize. Uh, Natural selection plays the odds. So occasionally males who are potentially kin but not actually kin will behave as if they are kin because they're playing the odds and have no way of telling whether they're actually kin or not. Mm -hmm. So chimp troops are built around a core of close kin males who cooperate in a kin-selected fashion to do various things, including repelling attacks by other troops, 
but they also tend to police the social behavior of the non-kin females who are their adult mates. Um, and we can talk about that in detail if you like, but it gets a little esoteric mm-hmm. at that point. The crucial point here is that animal troops are built around the core of kin adults. So lion prides and monkey troops are built around cores of kin females, chimps around cores of kin males. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say, sorry, Joanne, did you want to add something to that? I did. What I wanted to say was sometimes I think some of the confusion comes in some of these artificial environments that we put these animals in. In other words, you you can put a a group of of chimps together, and it's interesting to understand how natural selection builds minds. In other words, it builds minds to understand what was successful in the evolutionary past. So if you put non-related chimps together in an artificial environment, they actually will act as if they are related because that's the way their minds were built to perceive their world. Mm -hmm. It's an artificial situation. It's an artificial situation. And they're Mm -hmm. behaving anomalously in a way that that does not really reflect the evolutionary logic of the behavior itself. (laughs) So they would act as if they were related. So that's important to understand when we start to look at some of the the research on these non-human animals, especially chimpanzees. That, That happens to me every time I go see a weepy movie. (laughs) <laughs> if you know what I mean, I'm putting in an environment where my brain says, this yeah. is really very sad, and I think it's celluloid. <laughs> That's exactly right. But, but the interesting part is, you know, it may look like non-kin cooperation in the short term. However, if we left these animals to the natural environment again, without the ability to manage the conflict of interest problem between non-kin, they would quickly revert uh-huh. to what... Uh, to kin-selected behavior. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important to give a very concrete example to people about what we mean by by cooperation. And I remember years ago when I first started to read about uh, chimpanzee troops, you know, take the most basic form of human cooperation, and that is sharing food. Chimpanzees don't really share food, even uh, really at all. I mean, we've seen maybe some of it in some contexts, but they don't even share food. So this degree of really asociality from our perspective is is profound. It's really almost black and white. Uh, they, they shade into one another, I suppose, depending on where you, you know, make your distinctions and put your markers. But uh, I remember thinking, you know, it's similar with what people say about chimpanzees and speech. Chimpanzees can't talk at all. <laughs> they just can't. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, behavioral psychologists and, and primatologists have tortured these chimps for years and years trying to get them to say yeah. anything, and they just can't. They don't have the mental architecture to do it. Uh, similarly, I think with this this kind of um, non-kin cooperation, they just don't have the mental architecture uh, to do it. Um, let's move on actually pretty quickly. We're about halfway through here. So uh, to the theory of history itself, because I think that's the part that will most interest the listeners. So we have this first moment where the predisposition, if we can call it that, to uh, cooperate in a profoundly new way is born of the ability to uh, engage in low-cost policing. Uh, so that's how we're sort of programmed, if I can use that dangerous metaphor, to cooperate in this way. Uh, but our first uh, groups were actually quite small, and they get larger over history, and they also change a little bit. And that really is the meat of the historical theory. So let's move from um, elite throwing to the next weapon system, if we could. Okay, absolutely. So elite throwing uh, then produces this environment you just alluded to, uh, where cooperation is extended to groups, say, of tens to hundreds. Um, And uh, our language, our ethical psychology, our um, brain expansion all evolve in that environment. But no new weapons uh, are invented during that first time, about 1.7 million years roughly, from the origin of throwing and the first members of Homo until the next revolution. There is then the first fundamentally new coercive weapon invented is the otlaw or the spear thrower, which dramatically extends the range at which we can project lethal threat, probably about fivefold, maybe even tenfold, from thrown stones. That happens in a small East African population somewhere between, somewhere around 50 to 45,000 years ago. That same population is ancestral now as a matter of genetic fact. To every human alive on Earth, mm-hmm. population quickly starts to expand. It grows out of Africa, spreads across Eurasia, driving existing uh, hominids, including the Neanderthals, to extinction, and skips the Wallace Line and the polar ice cap and brings hominids to Australia and the New World for the first time. That's our theory would predict that. The scale at which we can suppress conflicts of interest has increased. The scale of our social cooperation goes up. We start being able to specialize on a whole new scale. We have a vast 
expansion of cultural repertoire and our capabilities therefore increase, producing what is sometimes called the behaviorally modern human revolution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Joanne, do you want to add something to that? Well, the only thing I would add is that it, it's important to remember that the um, the internal law enforcement is what we're talking about mm -hmm. within a social group. In other words, the more people or the more animals that can, that can uh, cooperate with each other, and they can they also know that their interests are protected, which is where the internal law enforcement comes in. That means that they are free then to trade with each other and not be afraid of exploitation. And mm -hmm. that's what this internal weapon does. So the degree of adaptive sophistication and specialization, as Paul said, can increase. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. We are so the economic and the pedagogical animal for exactly these reasons, because mm -hmm. we can place the exchange of goods and of information. Mm -hmm. I see. So the, the um, key variables, if I could be a little bit reductive and model this, for the impact of these weapon systems on the size of human cooperation are range and perhaps destructive power? Does that make sense? Yes. And and opportunity cost. What what it how much time it would take right. for law enforcement versus time taken away for other behavior. Uh -huh. so Maybe you could I'm sorry, I'm, go, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, sorry. There are some subtle secondary issues, uh, as Joanne mentioned, opportunity cost. But yes, to a to a crude first approximation, range and uh, uh, the range at which you can project lethal threat is the issue. Yeah, that's my middle name. To a crude first approximation. That's what I'm all about. The um, the that's what we began to understand. Right? Yeah. So you uh, maybe you could explain a little bit what a, I was pronounced it addle addle, but it's oddle oddle. Maybe you could explain what that is for those who don't know. Okay, so it's a spear thrower. In fact, otlatl, so it's pronounced, even though it's two, it's A-T-L, A-T-L, it's pronounced as if it were A-T-L-A-T-L. Okay. Uh, it's actually an Aztec word, because the first time Europeans recognized this weapon is when the Aztecs were killing the conquistadors with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the otlatl went actually everywhere around the world. So Australian Aborigines, for example, had it at European contact. It went everywhere with people, the behavioral amount of humans everywhere they went. It is essentially a throwing stick, which sounds kind of deceptively unimportant. But you hold it, there's an illustration in the book of how it works. But you hold it in your hand, it's about maybe a foot and a half long. And you, at the end of that stick is a hook in which is embedded the end of a large arrow-like bolt. And you go through the normal elite human throwing motion, but at the end, when your hand whips forward, normally throwing a baseball, say, with your two fingers, you're now throwing this sharp spear with a, a foot-and-a-half extension of your hand, which gives you vast increase in velocity. So that, that bolt leaves the, you know, fastball leaves your hand if you're really good, say, at 90 to 95 miles an hour. This bolt will leave the outlaw at 130, 140, 150 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And a really skilled person can actually put one of these bolts entirely through a human body. It's a very lethal weapon. Mm -hmm. I see. And as you say, we find these, we find these all over the world. Wherever these uh, early modern humans migrated, they brought with them this weapon. They did indeed. So, for example, you may be aware of the uh, of the early uh, pre-modern cultures uh, in uh, in North America, the the ones that are associated with the early mammoth hunting and so on. Those so-called Folsom points and other kinds of points, those are in fact otlatl dart points. Yes, mm -hmm. this weapon is everywhere modern humans grow go from the very beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's some. Gonna... By, go by, ahead. By, yeah, it's eventually displaced by the bow. So we think of Native North Americans as bow-armed, but that's fairly recent. They were otlatl armed throughout most of their history. I was going to say there's some great pictures in the book of you guys uh, experimenting with these things. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> not very good at it, but it's fun to do. <laughs> it made me want to go do it. I don't know if we can – if you're in Iowa, it's probably illegal. But I don't, I don't know if it is or not. But anyway, so let me um, – this increases the uh, the level of human cooperation uh, somewhat, and it corresponds uh, roughly with what we call the Neolithic Revolution. Is that right? No. So, so the Atlatl is the behaviorally modern human revolution. The okay. Neolithic revolutions in Eurasia and North America are produced by the next weapon, the bow. Okay. All right. Let's get let's get to the bow then. Okay. This is where the the importance of opportunity cost comes in. Because the bow is much easier to use. In other words, a few minutes of, of it's harder to make, but it's easier to use. So uh, in order to be really good at law enforcement, the bow is, is easier and more democratically available to more people. So if you can have law enforcement on an everyday basis, people can then settle down and have sed sedentary settlements. Because that's the, people don't understand that that's what the problem is as far as sedentary settlements, is you need to have policing within those settlements. And that's, that's what the bow gives you. 
Mm-hmm. It gives you cost-effective. It gives you cost-effective policing on an everyday basis. Now you can have durable goods. You can create and grow more than uh, just for your family's subsistence because now you can protect what you need to trade internally, and then you can have a good economic system within the group that is protected by the bow. Mm-hmm. I see. So we'll come back to the bow in just a second, but before we do, there's a question that I'm sure a lot of historians are going to be interested in. Doesn't your theory require, and I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it for the listeners, a theory of innovation as well? In other words, why do these things appear when and where they appear? And the things I'm talking about are all of those new and uh, more effective weapons after elite throwing. That is the atlatl, the bow and arrow, and so on and so forth. Why do they appear where they appear when they appear? It does indeed. So there's, first of all, there is a stochastic element to this, to their appearance. But we know something about the appearance of several of these weapon systems. And then, of course, as we get into the modern era, we know a lot. But let me, let's talk about what we know about the bow and the outlaw. It looks like the outlaw was developed as a specialized hunting weapon. This is the characteristic pattern. Just as with elite throwing, it didn't evolve in order to support law enforcement. It evolved for a different purpose. And then humans immediately apply it to law enforcement whenever you give it a new weapon to them. That works. That works, right. So, <laughs> so the outlaw appears to have been invented along the African coast for hunting things like sea lions, things like that, animals that are a little hard to get at. And uh, a, one local culture apparently refined the weapon to the point that they re- got, it got to be really a very effective weapon, and that is the population that ultimately produced the behaviorally modern human revolution. The bow is a little less clear. It, it originates somewhere in the Middle East or North Africa. It probably was originally developed to hunt small mobile games, say large birds or small uh, rodents, you know, rabbits, things like that. It's not clear. Um, but again, what is really required is that there's some immediate self-interested incentive to develop a new weapon for some immediate purpose. You don't develop it in order to go and create a new scale of civilization. It's, mm-hmm. it's developed for some other reason, and then humans turn around and deploy it in order to, uh, to suppress conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then that, that does produce a certain stochastic uh, um, a feature to this. But the scale of human social innovation or human technical innovation is sensitive to the scale of our social cooperation. So, of course, this is autocatalytic. Mm-hmm. As our cultures grow, the rate at which new weapons come keeps increasing. Yeah, this is I, a- I would almost add something to that. You know, before you talked about uh, humans throwing like a dolphin swims, we can really say once, once we, this process began, humans started to manage conflicts of interest the way a dolphin would swim. Well, we've been doing that. In other words, we're very good at it, and when, when, it, when a new weapon comes into our hands that can be used to manage conflicts of interest, it, it wasn't developed for that purpose, but when it's in our hands, we use it that way. Mm-hmm. We've all, we continue to do that. So you can argue that Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin were doing that in 1945 with aircraft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I see what you mean. I think it's important to go to take a, just a step back and uh, dwell a moment on this uh, notion that Paul mentioned about uh, the process of increases in the rate of innovation and the growth of population having an autocatalytic relation to one another. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? This is this is an important point. It, it is indeed. So uh, let me divide it into two subsidiary points, which I think together make the larger point. So we, all of us, tend to be rather conceited about our individual intelligence, and so we tend to think that individual human intelligence is the crucial variable in uh, history. It's mostly not. Uh, it doesn't matter how smart we are. As isolated individuals, we're powerless, ineffectual, and ignorant. What really gives us power is the sharing of expertise and information, and our intelligence is fundamentally limited by that. So as the scale of our social cooperation increases, our ability to do things increases concomitantly or maybe even exponentially. But so what that means then, and that's the first point, the second point is that each new weapon invented in the ways that we discussed a moment ago increases the scale of that enterprise, giving us access to vast new uh, repositories of individual expertise and shared knowledge. That then will make the invention of the next weapon much faster than it would otherwise have been. Mm-hmm. We're now at the point, of course, these days where we're inventing spectacularly new weapons on an almost yearly basis. Um, precision munitions in the last decade, for example, mm-hmm. are a spectacular innovation in global projection of threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, go ahead, John. A specialization would, would result as an effect of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I was uh, very... Uh, surprised by uh, actually there's an economic literature on this as well and uh, they build an extraordinarily simple model 
who they is, I, I really can't be very specific about because I've forgotten all their names, uh, that concerns the number of people alive and the rate of innovation. And what they show is that these things are more or less linearly related. Uh, and also, interestingly, geneticists have a, a similar sort of uh, linear relation between the number of uh, exemplars in a species that is the size of the popu- all the populations, wherever they might be, and the amount of genetic diversity which appears under, yeah. let's say, light constraints. That is very light selective constraints. So, you know, there's a lot of genetic, just numerically, a lot of genetic variation in the world today because there are 6 billion people. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's a huge experiment going on. We don't know about it, and there's very little selective pressure, but it's going on right now. This is something that they pointed out. And I, there's something a little bit compelling about this because it does remove this notion that somehow it takes a genius to do these things. It may take a genius. It's just we have a lot more geniuses, I guess yeah. I'd put it that way. Well, <laughs> and so the cult of the genius, you know, are you Einstein, Darwin, whatever your model is, it's partly, of course, a a, a – Fable constructed by institutions to explain their ineffectuality. I mean, it's it's striking that Darwin was a gentleman farmer and Einstein was a patent clerk. Yeah. Right? That's telling you something about institutions. And so uh, academic institutions have to kind of explain that away, and the cult of the genius is a convenient way to do that. But I think that's a second, that's a conversation for another day. And yeah, I no. think. The genius is also part of uh, coming out of the archaic state. Yeah, that's, yeah I, I like to tell people that I, I run here at the University of Iowa. I'm the only member of the Institute for the Study of Mediocrity. I'm, yeah. I'm, it's just me. I, I'm studying it. So let's move on then. Uh, so this expands the size of these human groups and the level of cooperation within them, however measured. That is the creation of the, the bow and arrow. Uh, then there's a kind of a natural experiment that you uh, notice, and that is uh, different rates of, de- we'll call it development. I don't know if that's a neutral term or not or acceptable to most people. We'll call it development um, between the Americas and Eurasia. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so let's take let's divide that in two parts. So Mesoamerica and South America are one story. North America is a second story, uh, probably having to do with the, the climate barriers in the in the southwest. So the bow actually is invented in North Africa. It spreads across Eurasia, and in its wake, I say again, in its immediate wake, there are a whole set of agricultural revolutions, including the ones we know about in the Middle East, for example, producing wheat and barley and pigs and cows and things. Another set in East Asia, a few thousand years later, immediately after the coming of the producing millet and several different uh, rice variants. Then the bow apparently slowly spreads over the pole and into North America. And in fact, it doesn't come to North America until about 400 A.D., very recent. And in its immediate wake, I say again, in its immediate wake, you get these this massive fluorescence of Neolithic cultures, including, of course, the two famous cases, the Mississippians in your neck of the woods mm-hmm. and the Anasazi in uh, present-day New Mexico and Utah and so on. So that's a very striking temporal displacement. North America is 10,000 years behind Neolithic Eurasia, but they are exactly in step with the coercive technologies that they possess. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, I see. So, um, Am I addressing your question, Marshall? Yeah, no, that was exactly right. What, what is the story with um, uh, Central and South America then? Yeah, so that's a much more interesting, uh, much more complex story. We believe that the boat does not come there until late. And uh, so there are two parts to that story. Behaviorally modern humans do domesticate plants, uh, rarely, but they do. And it looks like behaviorally modern humans in Meso and or South America domesticated a strain of cotton, which in turn produced the ability to uh, uh, generate elite woven uh, garments. Mm-hmm. They eventually produced uh, elite body armor. Mm-hmm. So in fact, the, the Aztecs were using quilted cotton body armor, kind of like Kevlar, at the time of their engagement with uh, uh, the conquistadors in mm-hmm. the uh, 16th century. That body armor creates the ability to produce elite uh, armored warriors. Mm-hmm. It creates individuals who are refractory to the available projectile weapons, the bow or the outlaw, for example. And those elite individuals then police conflicts of interest for the society as a whole, creating what we call an archaic state. Mm-hmm. And we believe that's the trajectory in Mesoamerica. There's a lot of evidence. Uh, we can talk about the archaeology if you like. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the, of course, the downside of that, Joanne was starting to allude to a moment ago, is that humans project self-interest not in the common good, but in pursuit of self-interest. Mm-hmm. These elite males, whether they be Roman legionnaires or Aztec or Inca warriors, of course, are creating societies that serve elite and male interests, not everyone's interests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. One of the important things to remember is that uh, on this theory, Human history, for the most part, because threat was democratically distributed, 
was mostly very democratic. In other words, women uh, um, and men, most men, could protect their interests, uh, their individual interests, uh, equally. Mm-hmm. But once you get into the archaic state and you have elite body armor, what tends to happen there is that's not no longer the case. There's a tremendous opportunity cost to uh, use this body armor. And women start to become subjected at that point, and so are non-elite men. Mm-hmm. So this falls right along the theory as far as it being individual self-interest that matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if it was for the group benefit, then it, you know it wouldn't turn out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, of course this is particularly important, even though this is a transient blip in the two-million-year Herman story. It, it's particularly important because, of course, archaic states invent written language. And so our written history appears to start in what looks like a hierarchical male-dominated situation. A lot of biologists and social scientists alike have made the mistake of assuming that that is the ancestral human condition. It's very unlikely that it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, yeah, that's true. Almost, uh, You can kind of see that in our morphology, but we won't go into that. Uh, so let's move on to the, um, the next weapon system, and that is gunpowder weapons. They have a very interesting history. Go ahead. Yeah. So there's actually a large body of military history that I think uh, you could comment better than I, but I have the impression that a lot of mainstream historians kind of uh, ignore military history. And the military historians have been telling us for at least 75 years that there's an intimate connection between gunpowder and the rise of the modern state. No question and, about it. <laughs> yeah, and our theory actually predicts that. And we predict that that happens in two stages, Marshall. The first stage is uh, artillery. Even though it's a big, heavy weapon, it's technically very easy to make. And so artillery is developed in Western Europe from imported um, East Asian gunpowder, uh, probably the middle of the 14th to the middle of the 15th century. And the early modern state follows from that. So these large weapons, of our, which artillery is the first example, are no longer individual weapons. The use of the weapon is itself a social enterprise. So the, the uh, effect of the weapon is determined by who controls it, and that in turn is determined by who controls individual coercive threat. So these early weapons are developed in the context of the late archaic state in which armored warriors, elite males, are still the dominant force. Mm-hmm. So the France of Louis XIV uh, had heavily armed nobilities uh, um, fielding gunpowder artillery. Mm-hmm. That produces a, a new scale of social cooperation because the early modern states are more stable and larger than archaic states. But it's a, it's a fairly puny increase in adaptive sophistication. The big pop from gunpowder comes with the second development of technically more demanding but small weapons, individual gunpowder weapons, handguns. Those are developed in the 17th century, and in the immediate wake of those, they're developed in Western Europe, and in their immediate wake, we have the democratic revolutions, the glorious revolution in the UK, the American revolution, the French revolution. Those result, these weapons have the ability to penetrate any body armor that's technically feasible, and as a result, they chase elite warriors from the field. Mm-hmm. Now, human societies, including big social weapons like artillery, are controlled by whoever controls these weapons. So in cultures where these weapons are democratically distributed, so Western Europe and North America are conspicuous examples, the modern democratic state arises. Mm-hmm. This is a colossally huge adaptive revolution because you're now taking this ancient two-million-year-old human trick of cooperation, democratic cooperation, and instead of doing it on the scale of hundreds or thousands, you're now doing it on the scale of tens of millions. And the scaling effect is spectacular, produces a scientific revolution, the modern economic miracle, and a whole set of other interesting effects. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of the expression, uh, God didn't make all men equal, Sam Colt did. Do you know yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're probably aware that the Russians either ripped that off or at least unconsciously arrived at the same thing. There's, the Russians have a saying, uh, God made men... Uh, um, uh, uh, Excuse me, uh, God people. made people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, uh, anyway, uh, and, and Kalashnikov made them equal. Yeah, right, exactly. No, it's, it's quite true. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're a little bit short on time here, and so I want to get from uh, the gun and the democratic revolution to nuclear weapons, which seem in a way to be perhaps the, I don't know, it seems as if almost the end of this trajectory. Go ahead and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we would argue that nuclear hyperexplosives are less of a qualitative difference than we sometimes think. Mm-hmm. We're already, even with conventional weapons, in the in possession of the technology to burn a city to the ground, mm-hmm. right? Witness Hamburg or Dresden in World War II. Mm-hmm. So we would argue that it's that capacity, the capacity to seize um, control of the air and crush a nation state, 
as by a coalition of other nation states. Okay. That is fundamental logic. Whether you use nuclear weapons or conventional hyperexplosives is, is, is secondary. Mm-hmm. But that effect then allows law enforcement on a planetary scale. And we would argue that the contemporary emergence of the human village, the pan-global human village, is in fact a, a consequence of that. Nation states have a different relationship now than they had 75 years ago. Mm-hmm. We're very good at recognizing credible threats. So in other words, those nuclear weapons were used, everybody wants them, it becomes almost like a standoff at that point, Mm -hmm. because no one will use them because they know everyone else will use them against them. Yeah, the old Mexican standoff, that's what it is. Yeah, Everybody's got a gun to everybody else's head, so they're pretty useless as as instruments and strategy. Oh, they're not. They're, they're not, not useless. useless. They're not useless. Remember that a policeman almost never fires his gun, mm-hmm. and yet if there are no bullets in the gun, law enforcement doesn't work. Mm-hmm. In fact, these these global weapons have that same underlying logic. The only time we would ever use them is if an individual nation state got completely off the reservation, like Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. Mm-hmm. Now that we possess them, no nation state is going to do that. Mm-hmm. This, this this is almost like we we the uh, we tend to forget how much course of credible threat is part of our environment that we peacefully operate under. If you remove the threat, the peace goes away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think uh, from your, if, yes. If you take it one step further now with strategic weapons, in other words, now we have strategic weapons that will go in and rather than punishing an entire civilization, it will go after the people that are responsible. So this is part of uh, what a democratic innovation, I would like to say, uh, uh, actually creates because democratic um, uh, coalitions tend to be much more humane. Mm-hmm. So here we're not going to look to punish individual citizens of a state. Instead, we're going to go after who it is that's responsible for the problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. So a future conversation for us to have is the relationship between hierarchical and democratized mm-hmm. cultures and military aggression, Marshall. That's a very interesting topic. I think it's beyond our scope today, but a very interesting Well, topic. I wanted to ask, you know, uh, I'm a little <laughs> bit old school about these things. I don't know about you, but... Uh, Good theories, good scientific theories should not only explain, but they should, uh, as you said, actually predict. Uh, And if uh, that is the case, then um, what is next according to the lights of your theory? Well, I think we have reasonable confidence that the trajectory will be as follows, that the, the pan-global cooperation will continue to increase, that is, the fraction of economic activity that is international will continue to increase. That's easy. The challenge is the struggle between hierarchical policies and democratized policies. Um, um, if you look at per capita GDP, the correlation between authentic democracy, I don't mean faux paper democracy, I mean authentic democracy, which is democratic distribution of access to coercive threat. The correlation between authentic democracy and economic and scientific productivity is spectacular. Mm-hmm. So the per capita GDP of North Korea, for example, is 20-fold lower than South Korea, to take one mm-hmm. sort of continuous example. So our other challenge is to democratize the remaining non-democratic states. North Korea, Iran are enormous challenges and obvious ones, but China and Russia remain. Mm -hmm. People focus on the Chinese growth rate. That's a mistake. Their per capita GDP is still abysmal. And working as a global coalition to enforce this, patiently enforce the democratization of those states is something we must do. It is something I think that we will do. And when we do it, the consequences for our grandchildren will be spectacular. A global population of 6 billion democratized humans is an unbelievably powerful thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Joanne, do you want to add to that? Well, what what I would add to that is that we, um, I guess the most important piece of that is this understanding that uh, when you have an entrenched elite, it is very difficult for democracy to merge under it. So the big question for us is how to protect a fledgling democracy or a, uh, a social group that's coming to be a democracy from the outside without overpowering, number one, and without letting other elites take over in the meantime. Mm -hmm. That's hard because you have an entrenched power already in place, and it's very difficult because it's not cost-effective for the individuals to take over that state if they don't have coercive threat already. I think we could uh, have an entire hour conversation about this. We have a lot of very detailed thoughts, but mm-hmm. uh, there are straightforward ways to do this. We know it works. Nazi mm-hmm. Germany and Imperial Japan are examples. The problem is the costs were high. Uh-huh. The trick is to do it more cheaply, and we have some very good ideas about how to do that. And uh, to, coming back to predictions about the future, we believe that the power, economic, and intellectual of democratized states will ultimately overpower the non-democratic states, and this will happen. Uh, the question is how fast. Mm-hmm. 
Well, from your lips to God's ears, as they say, we've taken an absolutely huge amount of your time. I could talk about this for another uh, hour easily, Um, but uh, I feel that we have to kind of close. So let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and I will ask it in the opposite order I began the biographies with. Uh, What are you working on now, Paul? Well, so the other half of my life has now become about cancer research, and we were developing a new approach to uh, cancer chemotherapy uh, that we think has enormous promise, and we've recruited a corporate collaborator in Cornerstone Pharmaceuticals to help us with that. That's exciting. But I'm equally excited about what Joanne and I are doing, equally excited about it. We have, we've developed world-class expertise in online instruction, and we're learning to teach this content, the content of the book, to a global audience, including mm-hmm. currently North American and British students, and we hope to expand that. And then we're also planning the next book that grows naturally from this one uh, on theories of institutions, but I think I'll leave it to Joanne to talk about that. Okay, Joanne, go ahead. Yes, it's very important as far as I'm concerned for theories of institutions because this is, this is the environment that we live and operate in every day in our public life. And those institutions need to be serving our interests uh, rather than just some elites. And some uh, institutions that we have today, that's not necessarily the case. So to understand what's going on, uh, and how to change it, I think, is very important to just not only innovation, but to our everyday life and the happiness that we get from it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'll have you on the show again when you're done with the next big project, and uh, maybe we'll talk for two hours then. I'd, I'd really like to thank you both for writing the book. It's it's absolutely terrifically interesting, and I think that it should be widely read. I really hope that it will be. I, I want to see a return to this kind of... Mm, uh, what, what I would call analytic theories of history as opposed to some other kinds. Uh, I guess I put my cards on the table there. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and again, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having Arsley, us. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Bingham and Joanne Souza about their new book, Death from a Distance and the Birth of a Humane Universe. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.